0: So thanks for um, coming and I'm delighted to be co-chairing this course uh, with uh, Steve and Chip and they're a lot taller than I am, apparently. <laughs> How, uh, um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Susan Bookbinder, who I think is well-known um, to uh, many of you. Uh, she's a professor of medicine, uh, epidemiology, and biostatistics um, here at UCSF, where she directs the Bridge HIV uh, uh, Research Center. And she's really just been a tremendous leader in the field of HIV prevention um, and PrEP, and I think uh, has done a remarkable job um, with colleagues in San Francisco of uh, Uh, driving uh, what's a pretty incredible effort called Getting to Zero that you may have heard about that really has has spawned um, uh, an effort around the globe so she's going to talk about getting to zero here in San Francisco but for those of you who aren't from San Francisco or may think well okay that's fine they're crazy in San Francisco and they can do this stuff but we don't have that kind of resources Um, I'd really encourage you to uh, and I think Susan's really going to highlight this think about what pieces of this might work in your community and how it works for you because it's it's not easy and we're all doing our best to figure out how to take care of our patients and to turn the tide on the HIV epidemic but I, I think this group has been a very inspiring group, and there are pieces that I always take away from this and how we can implement this in our own communities even even if we don't have everything that, that Getting to Zero has. So she's going to talk to us about um, Getting to Zero and then also talk about some real practicalities of PrEP and HIV prevention, so thank you so much, Susan.
1: Thank you, Annie, and uh, it looks like I'm even shorter than you or something. Um, So uh, thank you. It's great to be here. And I am going to pull back the curtain a little bit on how it is that we make the sausage in uh, San Francisco in our Getting to Zero effort. And it's because um, there are similar efforts going on around the globe. We're all trying to learn from each other. None of us has all of the answers. And I think it's by sharing sort of what we're doing and how we're doing it and learning from each other that we can really get to zero new HIV infections, zero deaths, and zero uh, HIV uh, stigma around the world. So I have participated in studies in which, uh, for which Gilead Sciences has donated study drug. Um, the learning objectives are I am going to talk about the uh, HIV epidemic in San Francisco, which really um, was mirrored in, uh, across the rest of the country. It just started a little bit earlier, and I'll show you that in just a moment, and then talk to you about getting to zero. I will talk to you about um, who might benefit from pre-exposure prophylaxis and how you might in- initiate and monitor patients on uh, PrEP. So I know this doesn't project well, but this was the state of the art in 1989. This is what a, a, a slide looked like in a publication in 1989 that showed the uh, the HIV epidemic in San Francisco. And the reason that we know this is that there were 6,700 gay and bisexual men who were recruited uh, into hepatitis B studies starting in 1978 and had blood specimens stored from that period of time. Um, in fact, the first AIDS cases weren't reported until 1981, and in 1982, they recognized that fully 40% of the AIDS cases in San Francisco had participated in this uh, cohort study of uh, hepatitis B, and it's because they were recruited from the Municipal Sexually Transmitted Disease Clinic. So what you can see, there are just two points I want to make here. You can't read all the numbers, except that it peaked, the, the HIV incidence peaked at 20% per year in 1982 which was just an astronomical number. HIV wasn't even, uh, AIDS wasn't even recognized until 1981. So the first um, uh, lesson I think here is that the horse was already out of the barn by the time we even knew what was going on. Um, The second thing to notice is just there was this huge drop in the rates of new HIV infections, now some of this was because of saturation of the susceptible population in this cohort, but it was mirrored in uh, in population-based data in San Francisco. And as I said, it it's true that this was the epidemic around the country; it just lagged in other places, and unfortunately, in the South is still going quite strong. But um, it was this this dramatic drop was really as a result of what the community did to try to reduce HIV acquisition. And I want to. Um, label this uh, HIV prevention 1.0. Now, I'm saying sexual uh, uh, prevention because we had uh, syringe access programs starting in San Francisco in the late 1980s. But um, really, what we had to offer people for the first 30 years of this epidemic was really public health campaigns, HIV testing, and condoms. And that's what we promoted that made a huge difference in the epidemic, so I um, that, that really uh, brought down new infection rates. And we found different ways of delivering them. So, this is the magnet clinic that was delivering uh, HIV services in a very, uh, a, a, and HIV uh, treatment prevention services in a, um, and testing in a very accessible way, mobile vans, and also uh, community based clinics. But it really, that's where we were for the first 30 years of the epidemic until uh, 2010. So that was the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And in 2010, PrEP was first recognized to prevent HIV infection. It was the the IPREX uh, study in uh, men who have sex with men that showed a 44% reduction in new infections. So that was really the first breakthrough in HIV prevention. And then the second breakthrough was uh, the science breakthrough of the year. In 2011, the publication that the HPTN 052 study showed that treating people who were HIV infected and fully virally suppressing them could reduce the risk of HIV transmission by more than 90%. now I'm gonna show you what was going on in San Francisco over this period of time. And I'm starting in the year, two th- oh, sorry. Just advanced by itself. Um, uh, this is what was going on in San Francisco starting in 2006. And we start in 2006 because that was the first year that HIV was a reportable uh, illness rather than just having an AIDS diagnosis. And going through 2013, which was just before the start of um, of the Getting to Zero effort. And you can see that there was a decline in new diagnoses by about 25% over that seven-year period. So we were doing a lot of things to actually help bring down new infections. In 2006, we started uh, offering HIV testing without a requirement for written informed consent, which really removed one of the huge barriers to providers actually even offering uh, uh, HIV testing. In 2010, before The results were published from the HPTN052 study, we started offering uh, HIV treatment to everyone regardless of CD4 uh, cell count, and this was really the first jurisdiction to do that because we recognized that it was going to help the individual, and then later it was also clear that it was going to help the community. We also started a huge HIV testing campaign because uh, testing is really the, the, uh, the, the initial linkage to either treatment or prevention. In 2011, we started a linkage program called LINKS, which was linkage and navigation uh, systems provided by peer navigators. In 2012, we started this first PrEP demonstration project shortly after uh, PrEP was FDA-approved to be able to provide PrEP uh, to individuals uh, who were at risk of HIV acquisition. And then in 2013, at San Francisco General Hospital, they initiated a rapid uh, ART program where same-day antiretroviral treatment and uh, linkage to a variety of uh, comprehensive <laughs> services was initiated. So that led to this, you know, substantial 25% reduction. But we felt like um, there was probably more that needed to be done. And in um, late uh, 20, oh, sorry, it just seems to want to advance itself in. Um, Late 2013, when we had our community forum, uh, our annual community forum on World AIDS Day, we talked about Getting to Zero, and we presented a whole bunch of different programs, and an astute community member said, "Gee, this is all very interesting, but are you actually working together?" And what we realized was that while we had a lot of individual collaborations, we didn't really have a comprehensive program. And so on that basis, we decided to launch the Getting to Zero initiative. And it's based on the, uh, on the framework of collective impact, oh. just wants to keep advancing, I, I'm, I can try to speak more quickly, um, <laughs> but um, what, w- uh, maybe this is a, cl- a cue from the, the, the co-chairs. Um, What we were trying to do was to bring together different segments of society, different uh, activists, community-based organizations, clinicians and providers, researchers, academicians, health department, people in other city government, uh, industry, members, just uh, interested members of society, all together towards a common goal, and that's what Collective Impact tries to do, and what we were trying to do is get to zero new HIV infections, zero HIV deaths, and zero HIV-associated stigma, and what we decided to do was to start by launching three programs, a citywide PrEP program, because although we had started offering PrEP, it wasn't as widespread as we wanted it to be. A citywide rapid program, so taking that pilot project of same day antiretroviral treatment that was started at San Francisco General Hospital and spreading it citywide, and then doing some more comprehensive work in link- linkage, engagement, and re engagement in care and retention in care. But this all actually had to be built on this solid framework of several decades worth of community based uh, services that were being offered to people who are at risk for or living with HIV. And so this is then where we are as of the end of 2016 when we have our most recent data. And this sort of yellowish-greenish line shows the number of new diagnoses. And what you can see is that we've had, over the last five five years, a 51% reduction in new diagnoses. So we think that we're starting to turn that curve and bring down the number of new infections even more, more rapidly. This is at the same time that the national numbers have declined by about 5%. So um, this is the reason I think that it's important for all of us to get involved in our local community-based efforts uh, at, towards a getting-to-zero type of effort. The blue line shows the number of deaths, and the last you have to ignore the last year because of reporting delays. But what I could say about the deaths is that we're not making nearly as much headway there. There's been some decline early on, but we've been pretty stable for a number of years now. And we can talk some more in the question and answer if you have uh, questions about that, because we're doing some intensive looks at why it is that we think we're not making headway. This is not HIV-associated deaths. This is just deaths among people who were living with HIV. So some are HIV-associated and some are not. And people say, so what are you going to do when you get to zero? And what we're going to do is we're gonna take care of these 16,000 people who are living with HIV in San Francisco because that's not going away. And so we still need a lot of HIV care and treatment, especially with this aging population. And so in developing our plans for San Francisco, we have to consider all of San Francisco, it really does wanna just keep going forward, Um, which is not just people who live in these kinds of houses but people who live in tents in the city and uh, we have an ever-increasing homeless population. And so the, the, um, the getting to zero committees that I described, the prep, the rapid, and the retention committees are all work, oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna try that. Um, so we're, we're trying to address these issues of disparities no, it just—I think it just—is on a self advanced loop. So, at any rate, uh, this—these are the number of new diagnoses in San Francisco. And um, while the majority of our new diagnoses are in men who have sex with men, um, 18%, so 9% each of men who have sex with men who inject drugs and people who je- whose only risk are in, is injection drugs are in. Um, so 18% in total of our new diagnoses are in people who inject drugs, and that's something that kind of crept up on us. And so it's it's a group that we're not adequately reaching, even with our syringe access programs. And these are people who may not be getting infected through injection drugs, but may be in getting infected through um, just uh, through sexual contact. But it does give us opportunities for accessing individuals who may be at risk of HIV infection and doing more prevention services there. Uh, 87 percent of our new diagno- of our new diagnoses uh, are in uh, women, I, I'm sorry, are in men in San francisco. and um so it's it's a little bit more skewed in San Francisco than it is in other parts of the country. But what we've seen is that we had uh, twenty five new diagnoses in women, and that's not going down. It's not gone down over a number of years. And so that's another group that we need to reach. And then, um, we have a, an, a spectrum of ages of people who are newly diagnosed, but we have to remember is that 15% are under the age of 30, but 15% are over the age of 50. So we really need to be providing services for everyone uh, living with HIV. So this now is um, the number of new diagnoses in men, and what you can, what you can see, what you could have seen. Uh, <laughs> My slides really do seem to be acting up. What you could have seen is that we had huge disparities in 2006 by race ethnicity, with uh, African-Americans shown in blue, uh, Latinos shown in green, in yellow or white, and uh, other is in this orange color. So we had these huge disparities in 2006, and we've been able to drive down rates of new diagnoses in African-American, Latino, and white men. But we still have disparities remaining, and if we look at women, remember there are only 25 infections, but they're almost pr- almost exclusively in African American women, and so that's a group that we also need to be addressing. I hope I don't cause seizures in any part of the. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, what we what we're we need to be doing is trying to find African American women who are at risk for HIV acquisition and getting them access to PrEP. So when I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our PrEP program, and I'm going to show you some data. The data are only for men who have sex with men, but we are really trying to now focus our PrEP efforts on women and on people who inject drugs. Oh, oh okay. okay, great, thank you so much. It wanted me to speak much more quickly. So, let me tell you a little bit first about our PREP program, then I'll tell you about our RAPID program, and then I'll tell you about our retention program. What we decided we needed to do at the beginning of 2014 when we uh, launched this PREP committee was we needed to to address this from three different angles. One is we needed to increase supply by getting to providers and increasing capacity of providers to provide PREP. One was to increase demand by both it, uh, getting people to know about PrEP and be interested in PrEP and then removing barriers to access to PrEP. And the third arm was to to actually measure the impact of PrEP because PrEP use isn't a reportable uh, condition, so it's harder for us to track it through our usual surveillance methods. And what I'm going to show you are some data on measuring PrEP use um, within uh, uh, the C- San Francisco City Clinic, which is our municipal sexually transmitted disease clinic. Um, this is looking at men who have sex with men who came to City Clinic, and all of them have been asked over a number of years at the beginning of their visit, are you on PrEP, are you currently on PrEP? So this just measures current PrEP, it doesn't measure PrEP persistence, um, and uh, it what we wanted to do was to look at people who were coming in who were PrEP candidates as determined by CDC's guidelines. So we used as those criteria that they had to be HIV negative and either have condomless anal sex or an STI or an HIV positive partner. Because we had several thousand uh, men who have sex with men each year, HIV negative men who have sex with men who come through the city clinic, we're also able to look at these issues of disparities by race, ethnicity, and by age. And we're also able to we ask them when they're not on PrEP, why aren't you on PrEP? And we can look at what some of those reasons are. So if we uh, look at what we've done from 2014 through 2017, you can see that we've gone from 11% to nearly half of the men who have sex with men who are HIV negative met these uh, behavioral risk criteria um, who would be uh, presumed to be eligible for PrEP, who uh, were currently on PrEP as of 2017. So that's great news. What I will say is our, re- our retention and persistence on PrEP is not as excellent as these numbers uh, would indicate, and so that's another area where we're, we're trying to, um, to improve. We wanted to look at how well are we doing within different racial and ethnic groups, and you can see African Americans, Latinos, white, and Asian Pacific Islanders all are increasing each year, so going from the left to the right within each cluster from 2014 to 2017. We've seen an increase in the proportion on PrEP each year uh, within each group, but less of an increase in the last year in African Americans, and they seem to be lagging behind all of the other racial and ethnic groups. So we have some specific programs that are targeting uh, African-Americans as well as Latinos, transgender individuals, and youth. We're doing pretty well across the age spectrum, which was heartening to see, and we can see that people in the older age group who were lagging behind are now starting to catch up. And we asked men who have sex with men who were uh, being seen at City Clinic who weren't on PrEP, why aren't you on PrEP? The, uh, what I'm showing you are data specifically for the African-American Men Who Have Sex with Men, but we did um, find similar answers from all different racial and ethnic groups. And we, we kind of put the categories into three different buckets. This is uh, 2016 and 2017, and it didn't vary all that much. There's a group that feel that they're not at risk. Now these are attendees at an STD clinic, so probably at least some of them are uh, having some risk. Um, and so, uh, but risk perception is a, is a difficult thing, and I think we've done ourselves a disservice by pushing PrEP as being the thing for the high-risk individuals. There are people who don't consider themselves to be at high risk, and yet they are being exposed to HIV, and so that's an important group to reach. The second are a group that just have a little bit of concerns about PrEP. They, they think they prefer condoms, they don't want to really take a pill a day. There are those kinds of things that um, that raise concerns for individuals. So that's the second bucket, and that's a group that we need to also address. And the third group are people who are having access issues. Either they're concerned about their insurance covering it, expense, or they're waiting for enrollment into a PREP program. We also heard from a number of African-Americans that, you know, this isn't really for us. That's for white gay men. That's not for for my community and our community. We don't see ourselves in any of the images around PrEP. And so what we've done most recently is to launch a campaign, a a PrEP campaign, using real people in the community, not models, who are PrEP users, many of whom are recognized, um, talking about how PrEP can support the powerful, the creative, the brilliant, the things that are important to you. And these are all uh, men and women who are actual prep users. So we'll see how well that campaign does. So now let me turn to talking a little bit about RAPID. And um, people say, well, why is it that you even need to start people on same-day treatment? We think it's important for a variety of reasons. Um, It's part of a shared decision-making about treatment when somebody comes in initially being diagnosed with HIV. Um, Most people do actually agree to start uh, same-day antiretroviral therapy, and we explain that it reduces uh, HIV complications, particularly in acute HIV infection. It reduces the size of the reservoir. It decreases transmission. To uh, other partners. And we found that for many patients, it helps empower them in disclosing their HIV serostatus. So if it's not self advancing, it's just going completely blank. Um, So I'm going to show you how we're, and I will tell you that we actually have um, brochures and a protocol on our Getting to Zero website, which is. Getting to zero sf.org and I would encourage you all to go onto that website. We've got lots of uh, different resources um, of all different sorts. So uh, please, and you can also sign up if you're interested in getting our, our email blasts about events that are going on in the community, and we have uh, meetings three times a year, and there are also ways of getting involved in the um, in the uh, committees. So this is how we're doing. You can see that we were doing pretty well from 2013 to 2016 in terms of the time from uh, diagnosis to care. The second group was uh, looking at the time from care to treatment and we've gone from uh, 27 days down to one day. And if you actually just cut to the chase and look at the time from diagnosis to viral suppression, that's been cut by more than half over that four year period from 134 days to 61 days. And again, this is going to be better for the people living with HIV. The people who we're treating um, are going to do better, they're going to feel better, they're going to do better um, themselves, but also it's going to reduce the risk of transmission to others. And when we look at how well we're doing um, in different racial and ethnic groups, we're actually doing pretty well in all of the groups the Asian group is doing the best. The white group is doing the, m- the most poorly, but we're we're making progress in each of these different groups. And we're even making uh, headway in our homeless population that account for about 14% of our new diagnoses. Um, the blue lines here are the homeless uh, individuals. The red lines are the housed individuals. And what you can see is that the gap has been lessening between those two populations. So we are even getting our uh, our individuals who are homeless or marginally housed into care and fully virally suppressed um, quickly. Retention and re-engagement I would say is probably one of our most difficult things to do and I think um, we all struggle with this issue uh, is how do we get people and keep them in care This is one of many cascades, and I'm just going to focus on the rightmost bars, the viral suppression rates. The 67% is how well we're doing with people who are what we call San Francisco cases. That means they were residents of San Francisco at the time they were diagnosed, no matter how long ago, and they can live anywhere in the world, but there still are cases. But what it doesn't take into account is people who were cases in other jurisdictions who move to San Francisco. That's the 73%. That's people who are living with HIV who we know are in San Francisco, um, and 73% of them are virally suppressed. And hold on to that number, 73%, because um, what we're doing then is comparing all of these other subgroups to the 73%. And what you'll see is that um, we're not doing as well in women, uh, both cisgender and transgender women. The rates are a little bit lower. Um, here we go, 66 and 67 percent. They're not doing as well in African Amer- American and Latino populations. 67 and 69 percent viral suppression. Not doing as well in the 25 to 40 year age group. 63 percent suppression. Not doing as well in people who inject drugs. 63 percent uh, suppression. And 31% of homeless individuals have a, uh, are virally suppressed. So that's the group that's most vulnerable and where we're having the most challenges. But I'm, I mentioned the Links program earlier on, and what we've done in the last year in the Links program is among the African Americans who have been enrolled in the LINCS program, 88% are fully virally suppressed, and among the homeless, 77%. So we're doing well even with populations that we're not doing well with in the general population. And so we're moving to um, a much more expanded uh, uh, intensive case management program to expand the, our, our links program. So people ask us sort of what's the special sauce about uh, getting to Zero San Francisco, and what I would say is we've got a lot to learn and a lot we are learning from other jurisdictions. I think it's bringing together all of these various groups um, who have this tremendous passion for the outcomes. It's our focus on just looking at the data relentlessly and trying to see who are we missing and who do we need to bring back in. Um, And so that's, um, that's how we're doing San Francisco Uh, San Francisco is getting to zero effort, and we look forward to to (coughs) encouraging all of you to join our efforts and to to learn from other jurisdictions as well. So now I'm going to completely shift gears and switch to talking about uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And this part of the talk is, is divided into five sections. First, who's most at risk for HIV in the United States, because that's the group that we should be getting PrEP to. Um, So now we're going to talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis, and as I said, we're going to divide this into five uh, categories. It's important to know who's most at risk in the country because that's the group that's going to benefit from PrEP. Um, We're going to talk about different populations and um, how PrEP might be taken within different populations. Um, We'll talk about what adverse events should be expected and tracked. Um, We'll look at how well we're getting PrEP to the the people who need it most in the country, and then I'll end by a little bit of PrEP 2.0. So our first audience response question. Um, In which group are the number of new HIV diagnoses rising in the United States? Is it one, people who inject drugs, two, African-American women, three, Latino men who have sex with men, or four, heterosexual men and women? Go ahead and vote. Okay. So um, actually, I'm going to show you that uh, we're making headway with African-American women and people who inject drugs, but not with Latino men who have sex with men. So uh, from 2011 to 2015, HIV diagnoses decreased by a modest amount in people who inject drugs. In heterosexuals, uh, 15%, including uh, African-American women. 10% 10% among white gay and bisexual men, but there were increases in um, African-American men who have sex with men and Latino men who have sex with men um, where the, it increased by 14%. And so that was, over that um, four-year period, uh, a, an overall decline of only 5% nationally. So we do need to do more to actually if we're going to really turn this curve. In the United States, about 70% of the annual infections are among gay and bisexual men. Um, It's pretty startling when you look at the actual numbers of each individual group. So the group with the single largest number of new diagnoses are black men who have sex with men, followed by Latino men who have sex with men. And as I said, that's the group um, in whom infections are actually increasing by the greatest amount, followed by white men who have sex with men. And you can see that for black and Latino men who have sex with men, that's way out of proportion with the size of the population. And it's followed by black women and then black men. So these are the populations in particular for whom we need to get more prevention efforts, including pre-exposure prophylaxis. We also know that um, HIV infection is not equally distributed across the country, and actually the most intense area for new HIV infections is in the south, 16.8 per 100,000 population, followed by the Northeast and the West. Um, And you'll see in a moment that the South is where we're doing um, least well in in, in getting PrEP out to people. So um, the next uh, audience response question is, how do you prescribe PrEP? So one is, I haven't prescribed it. Two is, I recommend only daily TDF FTC. Three is I recommend either daily TDF FTC or TAF FTC. Four is I recommend either daily or pericoidal TDF FTC, but only for men who have sex with men. And five is uh, I recommend daily TDF FTC or pericoidal TDF FTC for everyone at risk. So go ahead and vote. (coughs) This is, I just want to know what it is that you all are doing at this point. Okay. Well, uh, 67% of you are following uh, current uh, CDC guidelines, which is for daily TDF-FTC, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, alternatives to that potential regimen. So this uh, slide shows a number of different efficacy studies of different agents, and while you can't read the little uh, print, the bright pink are TDF-FTC prep trials. The the lighter pink um, are TDF alone in PrEP trials, and then there's some very light colored uh, pink which are topical PrEP, two um, studies of vaginal rings, and one lone HIV vaccine trial, but we hope to get more vaccine trials onto that chart. And, uh, and over to the right side of the curve. So effectiveness, the 0% effectiveness line goes right up and down the middle. And what I've done is drawn a line. Everything above the line it was effective uh, in terms of the 95% confidence intervals being higher than 0% effectiveness. So you can see that there's this huge range of responses, even with the same kind of agents, even with TDF-FTC prep. Some have shown very high levels of effectiveness, um... The PROUD and IPERGAY studies in men who have sex with men, 86% effective, 75% effective for TDF-FTC in the PARTNERS-PREP study in serodiscordant couples, but you can see that some um, had lower levels of, uh, of efficacy and some had no effectiveness at all. So what is it that accounts for that difference? Well, if you graph each of those individual studies onto a graph where you on, on the x-axis you graph the proportion of participants whose samples had any detectable drug levels against effectiveness, you can see there's almost a linear response, with the, the bottom line being PrEP works if you take it. So obviously, if people aren't taking it, you can't have any effectiveness. Whereas when a uh, large proportion of the participants were taking the, the um, TDF FTC, they did see high levels of effectiveness. But it wasn't the same for all populations. So these were the MSM trials. And these were the trials in heterosexual, serodiscordant couples or heterosexual men and women. And these were the studies in women. So what's going on with the women? Is it just that women were less likely to take PrEP and so they, they, the proportion was, uh, who were, uh, had detectable drug levels was lower or there's some biological factors at, at, um, at play here? And so in answer to the question, does PrEP work for cisgender women? It does, if, if they take it regularly. Um, they need high levels of adherence, so now we're looking at the relative risk on a log scale, and now everything to the left of the line demonstrates efficacy, a significant reduction in risk. And you can see that as you get to higher levels of adherence, you get to higher levels, uh, lower levels of risk of HIV infection. But we also know from PK studies that tenofovir concentrates at 10 to 100-fold uh, levels lower in rectal than in, uh, lower levels in vaginal tissue than rectal tissue. So uh, 10 to 100-fold times higher in rectal than vaginal tissue. And it's cleared more rapidly from vaginal than rectal tissue. So the PK studies would suggest that women need to take six to seven doses a week in order to maximize effectiveness. I wouldn't let this be a barrier to prescribing PrEP for women if you don't think that they're gonna take it every single day. But what it does do is it does, when you're counseling women, um, I would encourage them to try to take it every every single day and not miss doses. Because that's where they'll get the maximum benefit. Um, Dr. Schooley is going to talk more about the, the microbiome, but there were some data presented um, over last summer and, and then more recently showing that if women had vaginal dysbiosis, that is, if they had a non lactobacillus dominant um, vaginal milieu, they uh, did not see any benefit from to- topical tenofovir gel, whereas they did see benefit from topical tenofovir <laughs> gel if they had a lactobacillus dominant. Uh, microbiome. So the question arose, well, is that true for oral PrEP as well? And you might want to remember this for the questions that you answer at the end of the uh, session, but in fact oral PrEP is not affected by vaginal dysbiosis. So this is an interesting study from the PARTNERS PrEP trial. The light blue bars are the placebo arm, the dark blue bars are the uh, tenofovir-based regimens. And what you can see is that regardless of whether vaginal dysbiosis was measured by clinical means using Nugent scores or whether they measured whether there was a lactobacillus component or a Gardnerella or Bacteroides-based component, in all of these, efficacy was 63 to 77%. So it does not appear that vaginal dysbiosis affects the efficacy of oral prep. So oral prep does work for women as long as they take it, but they do probably need to take it on a daily basis. What about for transgender women? Well, in IPREX, 339 participants were identified as transgender women. And they didn't see any infections in women with detectable tenofovir in their blood, but unfortunately only 18% had detectable levels. Um, And so the question was, well, what was going on with the transgender women? And um, they were expressing concern that tenofovir-based regimens were going to somehow interfere with their feminizing hormones. And uh, in IPREX, in fact, the women on the hormones were less likely to take PrEP. Um, now, PK data suggests that, and you're going to hear a, a lecture this afternoon about transgender uh, health care, and PK data do suggest that there's no interaction with feminizing hormones um, and tenofovir, but we are getting data specifically from transgender, uh, some, from trials in transgender women, and that will answer that more definitively and hopefully allay the concerns um, of a very high risk uh, population. What about people who inject drugs? There's only been one trial of an efficacy study in people who inject drugs, and that was using tenofovir alone. And what it showed was that you needed very high levels of adherence, 97.5% using directly observed therapy to maximize your uh, PrEP effectiveness. So the question is, is it that there isn't as much forgiveness when you have a parenteral exposure, which may be the case, or is it because they just use tenofovir alone rather than tenofovir FTC? And I don't think we know the answer to that. CDC guidelines say that you can use tenofovir alone for people who inject drugs. Our recommendation is that you use tenofovir FTC for everyone, regardless of whether they're being exposed sexually or um, through injection drugs. And then what about men who have sex with men? How many doses can they get away with uh, in a given week? And this is uh, a modeling study that we did using um, healthy, uninfected uh, men and women and gave them two doses a week, four doses a week, or seven doses a week of tenofovir FTC and measured the tenofovir level in their blood. And you can see that the levels are lower and they, uh, in the two, twice a week and they overlap between the four to seven doses a week. And then we superimposed upon that what was the tenofovir level in the IPREX study, and how much reduction did you see in the HIV infection rate based on the level in the blood? And then from modeling using those two, combining data from those two studies, you can see that with two doses a week, the estimated efficacy is 76%. With four doses a week, it's 96%, and seven doses a week, it's 99%. So that's where we get this... idea that men can uh, take anywhere from four to seven doses a week and they'll probably achieve maximal effectiveness. So I don't use that to counsel people and say just take four doses a week. What I do is I say take the pill every day and if you miss a dose here or there it's not going to be a problem. So it's less of a problem for men than it is for women. Now there's another regimen that's been used, and that's the Ypres-Gay, uh regimen. And Epergay is, uh, or uh, as Annie would like me to say, Ypres-Gay, um, which uh, my French accent is really bad, um, was uh, giving two doses two to 24 hours before sex. This is the happy sex time. And then um, one tablet 24 hours later and another uh, tablet 24 hours after that. And so what we do to simplify that, we call it 2-1-1. Two one one regimen, and people were randomly assigned to either get tenofovir FTC or placebo um, with this regimen. But they were told if they continued to have sex, it could be like two one 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 because uh, as they had more sexual exposures, they were told to take daily pills until forty-eight hours after their last sexual encounter. And if their last pill, if when they started up again, if their last pill was within seven days, they didn't need this loading dose of two pills. They only needed one pill. So that's the EpiGay regimen. Um, And what did they find? Well, they actually found um, when they did the placebo-controlled arm of the study and compared placebo to TDF-FTC, there was an an 86% reduction in new infections. So that was phenomenal. And um, when they went and... Then did an open label component to it and compared it to the historical placebo control, offered everybody TDF FTC. They saw a 97% relative reduction in new infections. So this seemed to work. And so the question was, well, gee, for people who are having less frequent sex, is this a reasonable regimen? The challenge is that remember that if you're taking two two, 211, that's four pills in each sexual episode. So if you're having Um, only one sexual episode a week, you're still taking four pills a week, which is essentially the equivalent to taking a daily pill, right? And in fact, on average, the men in in the ypres study were taking 18 pills a week. 18 divided by four, that's more than four pills a week, so it was hard to say. So what they did was they went back and looked at people who were taking less than or equal to 15 pills a month and were using PrEP systematically for most or all of their encounters, so that's an important caveat. Um, So this is people who were actually adhering to this regimen. On average, they were taking nine and a half pills in a month, and they also saw no infections in that group. So that was good news, whereas in the placebo arm they did see infections. So that was good news, and it suggests that maybe you can use PrEP less frequently in individuals who are having less frequent sex. Um, uh, There's a little bit of a caveat. These were data that were presented at CROI this year. The, the blue is the full coverage of sex acts, the lighter blue that doesn't project all that well here is partial coverage, and the white bars at the top are no coverage at all. And what you can see is that you get better coverage if you're a daily user than if you're an intermittent user. Um, and if you were an intermittent user in particular, they weren't using it for oral sex. Um, but they also weren't using it some of the time for anal sex on a regular basis. And remember, that analysis was just in people who were adherent. So what hasn't changed is that CDC is continuing to only recommend daily PrEP because there are no randomized studies in the United States of um, on-demand or 211 PrEP, and the FDA reviewed only uh, data from the IPREX and Partners PrEP study, which was daily PrEP. It's also really important to know that daily PrEP is the only recommended option for women. Um, And that on-demand PrEP didn't seem to prevent side effects. So if the reason people don't want to take on-demand PrEP or don't want to take daily PrEP is because they're concerned about, you know, GI symptoms and those sorts of things, the rate of GI symptoms and and, uh, those adverse events were essentially the same as they were in the IPREX study. Um, It's not clear whether you get through that startup syndrome if you're starting and stopping and starting and stopping. But there are other reasons why people might want to take the 2-1-1 (laughs) regimen. And we certainly hear from people that I don't have sex all that often, so why would I take a daily pill? And if this is a way that they would take uh, PrEP around the time of sex, then it makes sense. But they need to be able to plan ahead for their sexual exposures, and the PK data suggests it's better that the pre-dose be taken 24 hours before rather than two hours before, and so we had done this study in 2012 asking men, uh, about 1,000 men, um, "What was your last anal sex episode planned, and about 50 percent said yes and about 50 percent said no, and then we asked, well, how far in advance did you plan, and um, it was minutes to hours. So. Um, <laughs> So you need to, if you're going to use the 2 on one regimen, people need to actually be able to plan a little bit further ahead than minutes um, before their sexual episodes. But I I understand there are all kinds of creative ways that people have um, gotten around this with either... Um, you know, taking their pills and then going on to grinder, or taking, uh, get, hooking up with someone and then having a nice bottle of wine first and, you know, talking and whatever. And so there are ways of delaying that, but um, remember, 24 hours is, is better if you can achieve it than two hours. So let's talk about safety, prep initiation and monitoring. Uh, It's really critical that people not be started on PrEP if they're actually HIV infected because you know that that's going to be inadequate treatment and they will develop resistance. So using a fourth-generation antigen antibody test to exclude HIV infection is important and not starting someone on PrEP if they have an acute uh, viral syndrome, which could be an acute retroviral syndrome. You don't start uh, a tenofovir-based regimen if their creatinine clearance is less than 60. It's important to measure their hep B status. Please do start people on PrEP, even if they uh, are chronically infected with Hep B. It's just that you'll want to monitor them more carefully, and that they're probably not a good uh, candidate for intermittent uh, or on-demand 211 PrEP. <laughs> um, Hep C is also important to test for, and you're going to hear uh, more about that, not because it has anything to do with PrEP, but just because it's a good it's health healthcare maintenance. And then you're going to want to d- get uh, STI and pregnancy screening and s- counsel people that they will potentially have startup symptoms, but that they will dissipate over the uh, course of the first uh, several weeks. And that's really important because where we see the PrEP failures um, are in people who start and then stop, Um, not people necessarily who stay on PrEP, although I'm going to get to that in a moment. Um, In terms of monitoring, it's really easy. It's just quarterly HIV and STI testing, pregnancy testing, and a creatinine at three months, and then every six months thereafter. We recommend three-site screening for everyone as long as it's appropriate, oral, uh, rectal, and uh, urine. Um, Modest... There have mod- been modest renal effects and um, that's been predominantly in older people, so I'm going to go through now a number of studies. In IPREXOLA and the San Francisco Kaiser data, the risk of having your GFR drop below 70 was higher if you start off with a more marginal GFR or if you're over the age of 40 to 50. In Partners Prep and Partners Demo, it was the same risk factors as well as being smaller, less than 55 kilograms. One of the notes of caution, though, from the Partners Prep study that was really helpful was uh, more than 75% of the creatinine increases um, were unconfirmed on repeat testing. So the first thing to do is to just re- repeat the creatinine to be sure that you actually are seeing a bump in creatinine. And they also found that when you did testing every three months, you were just chase- chasing a lot of spurious elevated results and that every six months was just fine. The question is, what about people who inject drugs? And in the, uh, the Thai IDU study, um, there was no effect of recent um, injection drug use on creatinine, um, but again, they also showed um, more creatinine bumps in people who are of older age. And in all of the studies, creatinine seemed to revert to normal um, after the trial. The same is true of bone mineral density. So you see about a one to one and a half percent dec- decrease in sp- uh, spine um, and uh, hip density in people on these tenofovir-based regimens. Um, that goes back up to normal uh, in both younger people and in older people after PrEP is uh, stopped. So we don't know the clinical significance. We haven't seen uh, fractures and and poor clinical outcomes in people on tenofovir-based regimens. This is an important uh, message, I think. Uh, PrEP is really highly effective, and it's most effective if you take it, but it's not 100%. So there have been reported cases of really well-documented high levels of adherence and breakthrough infections, a couple of cases in men who were being treated for hepatitis B, so they were on tenofovir alone, three cases of uh, men in the literature, and there are more than just this, um, of people on TDF-FTC who had resistant uh, virus, and then one really well-documented case of a man in uh, the Netherlands who had 50 to 75 male anal sex partners a month, Um, and lots of STDs, and so forth, um, who did seem to have a breakthrough infection. So it does seem that um, while it's very, very highly effective, it's not 100 percent, and we need to be sure not to promise 100 percent protection um, from PrEP, because people may be getting exposed to resistant virus. So in terms of summarizing the safety issues, (laughs) renal issues are rare in (laughs) HIV-negative populations who have a creatinine clearance of greater than 90. Um, so frequent and frequent screening l- largely leads to unconfirmed issues. So there's increased risk for older people who are smaller people who start off with a lower creatinine clearance. So that may warrant closer screening. Bone mineral density decreases are relatively small and reverse, revert to baseline off of prep. Um, we don't really know yet what the long-term outcomes are like in youth. It looks like they um, revert back to normal, but more data I'm sure will follow. I didn't show you all of the detailed data on STIs, but they're quite common in high-risk populations. Their increase in STIs predates PrEP. Now, it's possible PrEP is exacerbating that, but STD rates were going up long before PrEP was available. Um, So it's really important that screening be done because many of the cases of STIs are asymptomatic. Um, And remind patients that PrEP doesn't protect against other STIs, but now there are a number of studies that do seem to indicate that there's no decreased effectiveness of PrEP in the setting of STIs, which was one of our concerns, was that maybe it wouldn't work if you had STIs, but it still seems to work. And then resistance is uncommon if you're uninfected at the start of taking it. So um, you really want to be sure not to put people on, on PrEP if they are actually infected, and remind people that if they've been off of PrEP for a while and they've had sexual encounters, that they should come back in and get retested before they restart their own PrEP. Um, But there was an interesting paper actually recently that talked about PrEP failures, and we've gotten a lot of attention in the literature on these PrEP failures of resistant virus. But the majority of the PrEP failures are not from resistant virus. They're from people who either can't get PrEP in the first place or get it and then don't think that they're at risk anymore or they ran into insurance hassles um, and got bumped off of their insurance and can't get PrEP. And then we've had any number of uh, those reported cases of people becoming infected in the interim. So it is important for us to try to preempt that and to let our patients know that if if they do lose their insurance, that there are ways that they can get back on PrEP. And I'm going to show you some resources at the very end of the talk. So how well are we doing nationally in terms of uh, PrEP uptake? Not very well. So um, these were new data presented at CROI suggesting that 1.145 million uh, people might benefit from PrEP, 814,000 men who have sex with men, 258,000 heterosexuals, 73,000 people who inject drugs. Um, and what you can see is, in terms of coverage, the yellow bars are every one of all races and ethnicities, and you can see that we're at the lowest rate in the South, and you'll remember that the highest rates of new infection are in the South. Um, but we also have these racial and ethnic disparities. The blue bars are white, the green bars are black, the um, red bars are Hispanic, and what you can see is that nationwide, 14 percent of white. Uh, individuals who might benefit from PREP may have been on it from 2015 to 2016. That's only 1% of Black and 3% of Latino, um, so 8% overall. So we know that we need to get PREP out to other people, and and there were, we were having some discussion in the in the uh, break about what is it that less resourced settings can do to get to to ramp up and to get PREP out to individuals. And so a lot of this is about brainstorming. How do we just educate? Uh, providers about getting PrEP out into communities and how do we make sure that we're taking, you don't need a really detailed sexual history, you just need to know that somebody's at risk. And so I think that one of the other barriers is that people feel like they need to do this very, very extensive sexual history. Um, If you know that somebody's at risk, you can have a conversation about PrEP and get them started. And I think another group that we don't uh, traditionally get to are, there were um, these were data presented at CROI that 10% of uh, HIV positive patients who were being treated had HIV negative partners, um, but only 10% of them had their negative partners on PrEP, and 27% of those um, where the patient was not virally suppressed um, had partners, uh, negative partners who were not taking PrEP, so um, a lot of them were actually virally suppressed, but particularly then for our HIV positive patients who are not virally suppressed, we should be asking them whether they have any negative partners and recommending that maybe their negative partners could get on PrEP. So I'm going to end with just a few uh, slides on PrEP 2.0 and beyond. Big question that's always asked, well, what about TAF? Can we just use TAF for PrEP? And um, it definitely may have advantages in, in the treatment setting over TDF um, because you've got lower plasma levels. Um, and so uh, you, you aren't getting as much into the tissues in the same way, you, but your, your, um, your PBMC levels are, uh, uh, are higher. But the the challenge here is that it's we don't really understand how well it's going to affect um, tissue levels where prevention may need to happen, and so there have been these non-human primate studies where TAF FTC has protected macaques in rectal and vaginal challenge studies, but the human PK studies suggest that the active metabolite is unquantifiable in most tissues, so. We don't know whether or not TAF FTC works. There is a big study going on right now called the DISCOVER trial that's a head-to-head comparison of tenofovir uh, FTC versus uh, TAF FTC, but until we have results from those studies, we, we're not recommending that TAF be used as PrEP because we don't know yet whether or not it's going to work in humans. Um, and this was touched on uh, a little bit in terms of some of the presentations at CROI this year, but. Cabotegravir, this long-acting uh, integrase inhibitor, is being evaluated for PrEP. its I think of it as sort of, unfortunately, the next shiny object. People say, oh, we're going to have it all taken care of because we've got these long-acting injectables, and that's going to take care of it. The problem with um, cabotegravir in general, and we're doing one of the studies of long acting cabotegravir is an efficacy study, and so we are excited about it, but it's not going to be for everybody. You need to take a month's worth of oral drug first because it's non dialyzable. So once you get it in, it lasts for more than a year, and it's got a very long pharmacologic tail where you're at subtherapeutic levels, um, but perhaps high enough levels that if you have a breakthrough infection, you could become resistant. So that's something, so we have a long uh, tail of oral regimen after people are through with their long-acting injectable. There are other agents. You heard about the m- the new Merck agent, um, and there are other methods of delivery, including implants. And so I do think that there are lots of shiny objects in the future that hopefully will be beneficial, but I don't think anything, any one uh, solution is going to solve everything. We do have some active vaccination trials going on, two large trials right now in Sub-Saharan Africa that are using viral vectors with protein subunit boosts, and we're very hopeful about those. I showed you that there was one vaccine trial that did show a 30% reduction in um, new infections in Thailand. Uh, It was 60% effective at one year, and then the the immunity waned, and so we are testing both that as well as a vaccine that's a mosaic kind of vaccine that could be a global vaccine, so more to follow on that in the next several years. And then there's the issue about monoclonal antibodies, and there are really exciting developments in monoclonal antibodies. We have two studies going on right now, one in sub-Saharan Africa, one in uh, North and South America, looking at a monoclonal antibody, the vrc one Um, It is being given by infusion, so we are testing to see whether or not it will be effective in preventing HIV acquisition. Um, But the future probably holds uh, a variety of different approaches, including combining monoclonal antibodies, as well as there are ways of modifying the monoclonals so that they can be longer-acting, that you could do infusions less frequently or even be administering them subcutaneously, perhaps as infrequently as every six months. So that might be something in the future, and one of the advantages to the monoclonals over um, long-acting antiretrovirals is that you're not going to develop resistance to uh, treatment agents. I'm going to end with just two um, hopefully useful resources for you. There's Preplocator.org and PleasePrepMe.org. What I did was I just punched in my work address to um, Preplocator.org. What you can see is that there are a lot of uh, PrEP providers in San Francisco and some in the Bay Area, fewer in the Bay Area. If you roll your mouse over one of these little crosses, it tells you the name of the clinic, the address, and the hours of the clinic. If you are a PrEP provider and you're not in PrEP locator, there's a form that you can fill out on the page so that you can get yourself listed as a PrEP provider. So that's really important. And Please Prep Me not only has um, a similar kind of geolocating... capability, but it also has online people, navigators, who can help you with insurance related issues and help you get to where it is you need to go. And then the last thing is this Project Inform website. Um, They have some really nice resources, including um, ways that you can help your patients to figure out how they can cover costs, whether they're insured or not insured. And so with that, I'm happy to take questions. Oh wow! That was great, (laughs) Susan. And we have
0: some really great questions, so I'm going to try and clump them. Um, So um, you, one of the questions was about along the lines of getting to zero. Is there getting to zero California? Getting to zero U.S. What about this around the country?
1: So there is something called. uh, So there is an effort right now in That's California wide. That's going to be addressing um, HIV, Hep C. And STIs, but it's just in its very early formative stages. There's something called Fast Track Cities that's a global effort that's really bringing online multiple cities every single month. Um, And we're working very closely with a number of cities. Cities will contact us to ask us about resources. We go and try to hear what other cities are doing so we can learn from them. So there really are efforts, and, and if you're wanting to start something new in your jurisdiction, you could go to fast-track cities and get connected with at least other cities that are doing similar kinds of activities.
0: And going back to the epidemiology, one of the questions is, is the increase in Latino MSM, does that control for new diagnoses after immigration? Because maybe there's a little bit of a bias here.
1: Yes, there may be a little bit of a bias. Um, I would argue that if they, I mean, we, we do definitely see, and we see it in San Francisco, that a lot of people are first getting HIV tested. When they come to San Francisco, and they may be first tested when they first come to this country. So, we might, they may not all be new infections. They may be infections that happened elsewhere and are brought in, whether you're talking about locally or nationally. So, they don't have immigration status information on it. Um, But once they're here, they're ours to, to take care of. And so, we do need to make sure that we're providing services for all of those individuals.
0: Um, I think I'm understanding this right. Can you just summarize what the indications are for PrEP, like what those populations are? That, yes. Yeah. So
1: anybody who's at risk for HIV infection. So um, And CDC basically says for men who have sex with men, it's um, so everybody needs to be HIV negative. Everybody needs to have a creatinine clearance of greater than 60. Um, other than that, it's about sexual risk and or injection risk. So anybody who's actively injecting drugs, who's not always using clean injection equipment, or, or, or and and I mean all of the equipment. There's been some really in, interesting um, data presented at Croy this year about long-acting opioids lasting for a longer period of time in syringes. But um, so. And, and people who inject drugs may be at risk sexually. So anybody who's having condomless anal sex outside of a monogamous, seroconcordant relationship who are men who have sex with men, we think would be adic- uh, would be appropriate candidates potentially for discussions about PrEP. Women, it's been very difficult to try to figure out because women often have a single partner. But if they have any question about their partner's sexual risk <laughs> practices, they would also be um, reasonable candidates. And heterosexual men may also be reasonable candidates if they have multiple po- uh, female sex partners, although there's less transmission to heterosexual men, Um, but it's going to also depend on what your epidemiology is of your specific local region. There's more, uh, for instance, heterosexual transmission happening in the southeast of the United States than there is in in San Francisco.
0: So a bunch of sort of prep access questions. Um, So can you use generic um, TDF3TC? Um, instead of brand name, um, and so so, what's the update um, for that? And how much do you give at a time? and rumors of even up to a year being given to patients? And how okay much are they yeah, having? yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So um, we don't have data on whether uh, generic uh, TDF and three uh, uh, TC are going to be uh, useful. we We think it probably would be. Uh, it's not quite the same issue as with TAP. We know that TDF alone da- is, does provide some protection, so it it probably, if you have to get around it that way, but I would say that there are also lots of uh, access programs that people can access um, uh, for patient assistance programs so that you can get TDF-FTC as a single um, pill. Uh, it's best to just give three months at a time, um, at least what from what we can see locally, when people are giving one, uh, a whole year's worth, people are not coming back in for HIV testing, and we really do recommend that there be HIV testing. Now, one of the issues is it, it's also good to do STI testing on a quarterly basis. I wouldn't let people who can't afford STI testing on a quarterly basis be a reason for not prescribing PrEP, but we do generally give three months' worth. Now, if you've got somebody who's been really stable for a long period of time, you could potentially give a longer. Prescription.
0: In terms of safety, do you tell people to take vitamin D, and why not screen for Fanconi syndrome since you might miss it with a normal creatinine?
1: We see so little renal toxicity in HIV negatives that it's not really worth screening for, and you do a lot of chasing. We did a, a lot of phosphate screening in some of the early urine phosphate and, uh, ph- and phosphate screening in uh, a lot of the early studies, and they were it just we chased our tails over that. Um, were, uh, and then it. vitamin D. Oh, and we don't recommend vitamin D. There, There is this very small reduction in, I mean, a lot of people in San Francisco because of the fog do need vitamin D, but we don't give it specifically for PrEP. There's no indication that there's any clinical effect of the, the really minimal bone mineral density loss.
0: And just to remind you, so Ryan White funds cannot be used for PrEP? Ryan White
1: PrEP. funds cannot be used it's for PrEP because it's for treatment. many insurers do cover Ma- uh, Most insurers do cover it. medi covers it. Okay.
0: We're we're winding up, but these are some great questions, so I wanted to make sure we have time for them. So is a rapid point-of-care HIV test adequate in an asymptomatic person, or what's the algorithm that you're
1: using? So we we try to use a rapid fourth-generation test, but we do think that you could, I mean...
0: Meaning antibody antigen.
1: Antibody antigen, thank you, sorry. Um, Antibody antigen. If you don't have... You should not be using an oral test for PrEP. That's really important, because the window period for an oral test is... For uh, is is twelve weeks and it's not sensitive. It's not nearly sensitive enough. Mm-hmm. So don't use that as your screening test. Um, we do do some same day starts for prep, but we try to use a fourth generation antigen antibody. And then we sometimes will send off a viral load or do pooled RNA testing, so that if somebody is does sneak through and was actually HIV infected, we can catch them and stop them and get them uh, onto treatment. Would you start
0: and then use that. Now? Yes. Yeah, great. So then uh, just. To, uh, to close up with the RAPID question. So uh, one is, have you seen um, increase in um, uh, drug resistance um, using uh, RAPID? That
1: We've happen? not seen an increase in, in resistance using RAPID.
0: And then, you know, some questioning about, you know, how can you say that rapid decreases complications if you're really talking about only waiting yes. three weeks and, yeah. gosh, people are living so long now, You know, even if they started with AIDS, is it really going to make a difference if you start them this minute? It's a great
1: question, and not everybody wants to start, but what I would say is that the data, even from resource-limited settings, suggests that if you start people on same day, they're more likely to stay on it a year later, and that's really what we're looking for. And so there is something about a bird in the hand. It's just easy to put it off if you don't, get started when you first start. I mean, it, there was just data presented at Croy that was really compelling. Um, it might have been from search, I'm not sure, but it, w- it was from Uganda, and it was a study in which people were either randomized to receive uh, with home-based testing. Either they got a month's worth of pills and got told to go to their local clinic, or they got just told to go to their local clinic. And just getting a bottle of pills for that first month, 12 months later they were more likely to be virally suppressed. So I think that's really uh, there is something about starting people right away. It empowers them to take care of their HIV uh, care. Terrific. Thank you so Thanks. much.